0: Now, of course, throughout history, there's been stuff like the, uh, the Horatii and the, uh, the Curatii, uh, the Petticoat Duel, and of course, the Sandbar Fight, which you'll remember from Episode 72. But perhaps the most famous duel to emerge from history, particularly these days, obviously with a renewed interest in it, thanks to a certain musical, uh, is the one that took place between political rivals Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Uh, in the early morning of the 11th of July in 1804, these two bitter political rivals, they rode out to a uh, to the shores of the Hudson in New Jersey and attempted to settle their differences with pistols. Now, I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending here, but you probably know how it turned out. Very famous story we're talking about here, so you, you know probably know how it all ended. Uh, if you don't, however, you can't really complain about it being spoiled. Like, it's been over 200 years. You know, that's probably long enough to have found out about it. Anyway, um, the duel took on a, a larger than life aspect in history and and had a, a, a you know a reasonably important effect on on the very young United States of America, which was which was still finding its feet politically. Um, you probably know that Hamilton had been the Secretary of the Treasury, pretty pretty important bloke overall, uh, founded the Federalist Party, founded the Coast Guard, very important uh, in the development of the of the US banking system as he as he uh, founded the first central banks in the United States. But did you know that Aaron Burr, even at the time of the duel itself, was the Vice President of the United States. Imagine that these days. Imagine the Vice President of the United States picking up a gun and shooting another public servant. I mean, it just wouldn't happen, would it? It wouldn't ha- I mean, the last time this took place, uh, the last time something as ridiculous this took place, you know, the Vice President shooting someone, Geez, how long ago was it? Whew, like, what, 2006? I mean, oh, it's been so long. It's been, it's, you know, over, over 15. No, not even, not even over 15 years ago. Not even 15 years ago, since the last <laughs> the last time that a vice president of the United States shot someone. Anyway, today, today we're going to have a ch- <laughs> we're going to have a chat about not only the duel itself, obviously, but the lead up to it. Why these blokes hated each other and uh, and and how it actually got to the point where they arranged to uh, you know to go and have this duel and, and shoot at each other. There's a lot to get across. Lot to get across here today. Uh, so let's get underway. Meet our cast of characters before finding out how their lives actually, you know, ended up intersecting in this uh, in this uh, huge way here. So we're going all the way back. Going all the way back here to well, um, honestly, actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, I thought I thought I'd start the, uh, the this you know the, the respective biographies of these two blokes, uh, which with whichever bloke was older, uh, but we actually don't know. We don't, unbelievably, un- unbelievably, we don't know which of these two blokes was was the old one. Aaron Burr, we know that he was born on the 6th of February in 1756, while Alexander Hamilton was born on the 11th of January in either 1755 or 1757. We actually don't know 100% which one it was. I'm, I suppose we'll just start with Hamilton, you know, because I guess there there is a chance it's the old one after all. Um, so yes, a- Alexander Hamilton, born in Charleston on the island of Nevis, which is today's uh, par- part of St. Kitts and Nevis. Uh, a small island nation in the Caribbean, and as I say, he was born in either uh, 1750, uh, 1755 or seventeen fifty-seven. He himself claimed it was uh, it was seventeen fifty-seven, um, but uh, it was it was he it was generally pretty vague about his age later on in life, and uh, you know he sort of only spoke about it in kind of round figures and. Uh, these days, there's a bit of evidence to, to suggest that it may have actually been 1755 after all. Look, we don't know. Whatever the case, he grew up in the West Indies and had, he had a, a, a pretty hard go of it with uh, with his childhood. His childhood was was, was full of hardship. His, his father abandoned his mother at a, you know, when he was just young, and then his mother died when he was only 13, uh, leaving him and his brother penniless. But uh, young Hamilton, he found his feet, he, he worked with a trading company, and then ended up in Boston in 1772, uh, and it was uh, in the you know the thirteen colonies at the time that he joined a revolutionary militia in 1775 after the battles of uh, of Lexington and Concord, and he became a captain of a company that fought in New York. And ultimately, he was invited to become an aide to George Washington. Uh, George Washington himself, uh, during which time he rubbed shoulders with many famous people from that era and made you know very important political connections. But he longed for the battlefield, he did. And after having uh, left Washington's staff, he was eventually given command of a battalion that fought in the Battle of Yorktown, which is where the uh, the American Revolutionary War effectively came to an end with the British surrender. And after the, after the war was over, he got married, he worked as a lawyer, before uh, moving into politics, where he represented New York at various political conventions – uh, he was a signatory of the US Constitution. He contributed to, to the very famous Federalist Papers, which you may have heard of, and uh, ultimately uh, ended up being appointed as the first Secretary of the Treasury by Washington. So the, the United States, the, the first ever Secretary of the Treasury was, of course, Alexander Hamilton. He's on the $10 note, and uh, and there's a good reason for that. And it's here as uh, as the Secretary of the Treasury that he clashed with people like Thomas Jefferson, um, a clash that gave rise, I might add, to the rivalry between the Federalist Party and the Democratic Republicans. Uh, As we talked about in episode 103, the Federalists, led by such people as Hamilton and and, and, uh, John Adams, they were happy to interpret the Constitution pretty liberally, uh, while Jefferson's Democratic Republicans were much stricter and they believed that if the Constitution did, didn't uh, expressly allow something, it was then it was therefore prohibited they were they were uh, very very constructivist in their approach to uh, to constitutional uh, interpretation there. So Hamilton and Jefferson they sparred on all sorts of political matters with uh, Hamilton as a Federalist and Gemma, uh, Jefferson as a, as a Demo- Democratic Republican. Um, and this helped to set the stage for ongoing political conflict after Washington's presidency uh, once Federalist John Adams succeeded the independent Washington but ultimately, uh, Hamilton resigned from his position in Washington's administration uh, in 1795, when his after his wife had a miscarriage. Very unfortunate indeed. And so he returned to New York, worked as a lawyer, uh, you know, in order to be close to his family, spend more time with his family there. Uh, and the very next year, in 1796, Adams won the president, uh, presidential election, and you might have thought, Fantastic, Hamilton would be very happy with this. They're both Federalists after all. But uh, despite them both belonging to the same party, Hamilton Hamilton didn't like Adams at all. And uh, as a result, was a lot less active in Federal politics. Instead, as we'll discuss in a sec, uh, this period uh, between the 1796 and 1800 presidential elections, uh, when Hamilton was back in New York, when he was working there, this was when the rivalry between he and Burr really took off, while Hamilton had kind of pulled back from Federal politics a little bit there like that. But it wasn't to last. However, um, because as the 1800 presidential election loomed on the horizon, uh, Hamilton actually began to campaign. He began to chuck some of his political weight around campaigning against John Adams. As unbelievable as it sounds, this bloke was going around actually campaigning against the incumbent sitting president, right, who was, of course, the Federalist's own primary uh, candidate for the presidency. And you've got another um, high-level, high-profile bloke from the same party going around saying, no, don't, don't elect him, right? So he was, uh, I mean, obviously he was also opposing the Democratic-Republicans as well. He, it's not, he, was, he was pushing his own agenda there. But all he managed to do, right, in, in attempting to campaign against Adams, all Hamilton managed to achieve was a, was a huge split in the Federalist Party. And this was guaranteed the victory of his political rivals. And so this ushered in a Democratic-Republican administration, which, with, which uh, of course involved Thomas Jefferson as the president and none other than Aaron Burr as vice president. But who was Aaron Burr? We move now to have a look at the other half of our dramatis personae here. Uh, Born in Newark in New Jersey on the 6th of February in 1756, he was either a year older or a year younger than Hamilton, as we said. And he too had a bit of a rough time as a kid. Uh, He was orphaned at the age of two. His grandparents followed his parents to the grave the next year. And so he and his sister ended up with their uncle. And this wasn't a happy arrangement, unfortunately. Uh, Burr tried to run away from home on more than one occasion uh, and he ended up actually getting away to go to school at the age of 13. And after studying until he was 19, he abandoned his legal studies in 1775, again after Lexington and Concord, and joined the Continental Army to fight in the American Revolutionary War. So you can see some broad parallels between these two blokes in their early lives. Now, he fought, he fought in a fair few battles. He served under the famous turncoat Benedict Arnold for a while, and uh, he too also ended up on Washington's staff as well, but he quit before too long to go back to the battlefield and developed a a dislike of Washington, it has to be said, after the general failed to commend his heroic fighting in New York. In 1777, he was given command of a regiment, but in 1779 had to resign his position as his health was failing him. So he went back and finished his studies as a lawyer, got married, and just as Hamilton had, actually worked as a lawyer uh, before getting into politics by representing New York. So these blokes were very much in the same sort of political wheel, well, the same kind of life wheelhouse, really, being involved in the Revolutionary War, having an interest in politics, working as a lawyer, you know, in in the state of New York, uh, and, and so very, very, very interesting to see the broad parallels between the two uh, at the beginning of their story. So Burr worked as a public servant throughout the 1780s. He he rose to become the New York uh, State uh, Attorney General, uh, and then ended up becoming a senator in 1791. Um, uh, beating out, actually, interestingly, Hamilton's own father-in-law in in the election for this Senate spot. Um, But after the 1796 presidential election, he became loosely aligned with the Democratic Republican Party and turned into quite a political power broker with significant influence in New York politics. Um, And it was here as I said before, that his rivalry with Hamilton took off. And, you know, I mentioned that Burr had won his seat off of Hamilton's father-in-law. But he'd also engaged in in some political chicanery to set up a bank in defiance of Hamilton's federalist influence monopoly on the New York banking system. Now, Hamilton, of course, a big proponent of centralised banks. And uh, what Burr did, basically, was sort of uh, do some wheeling and dealing, some, some legal finessing in order to set up, right a bank that loaned money to small business owners that were on a very on a very partisan basis right so this increased his influence as a democratic republican power broker because he he loaned money to these people uh, to these small business owners in order that they could then meet the property requirements for the vote, right? And of course, now that they had the vote, who were they going to vote for? Of course, the Democratic Republicans, because they're the ones who gave the money. So a very, a, a very neat little system that uh, that Burr set up there, and obviously it enraged Hamilton and uh, went against what the Federalists were, you know, trying to achieve there, in ineffectively suppressing an enormous amount of voters, which you know isn't isn't a stellar thing to have on your uh, on your on your CV there. Anyway, bottom line is Hamilton spitting chips, absolutely spe- he spewing. His. He hates this. He bloody hated Burr personally, in addition to their political differences. But when it all came a gutzer in 1800, right, the bitterness between these two blokes got taken to a whole new level. Because I said before, during the 1800 presidential election, Hamilton worked to undermine the re-election of Adams, the Federalist president, despite them being from the same party. And this backfired on him. As I said, all his wheeling and dealing did was split the Federalist vote. So uh, uh, ultimately, none of the Federalist candidates ended up getting enough support. And uh, this resulted in a big win for the Democratic Republicans. Now, Jefferson was the leading candidate for them, and he picked Burr as a running mate, no doubt due to his role as a New York power broker. And these two won the election handily with 61.4% of of the vote, a, a huge majority easy game. However... This was all before the reforms of the 12th Amendment. This is all very complicated. We don't need to go into it too, too deeply. But basically, back then, before the 12th Amendment uh, changed all, the Electoral College was, believe it or not, even weirder than it is now each college member had two votes but didn't distinguish between voting for president or vice president so basically whoever got the most electoral college votes became the president and whoever got the second most became vice president and this is how you ended up with weird situations like thomas jefferson being the being the vice president to uh, john adams despite them being on uh, on different sides of you know, the political spectrum there anyway the democratic republicans with the lion's share of the electoral college votes they had planned to fudge the votes right so seven uh, so jefferson got 73 while burr only got 72 this was that you know that's sort of their plan to rort it from the very beginning um, uh, because Jefferson was the leading candidate he was going to be president and Burr was going to be vice president but they stuffed it up and both uh, somehow they they didn't they didn't do the right thing and both got 73 votes instead of you know the 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 one bloke who was supposed to turn up and not vote for Burr um, so weirdly the House of Representatives now had to break this tie that was how it worked uh, to decide whether it was going to be Jefferson or Burr that would become president. But Burr, you'd think, I mean, Burr knew what the plan was. He knew that he was going to be vice president. He knew he was going to give it over to, to Jefferson. He knew that this, this, there was this plot to sort of, you know, uh, have the electoral college votes uh, pan out in a certain way. But rather than go along with his party's plan, remember, he, was only very, he wasn't a huge, rusted-on member of the Democratic-Republican Party. And he was actually very happy to try to chance his arm and test his luck with the House of Representatives with a vote, which might actually put him in the White House. Why go against his party's plan? I mean, why do this to himself? Well, because the House of Representatives was controlled by the Federalists, right? And not only uh, is Burr, you know, not a hugely staunch de- Democratic Republican like Jefferson was, the Federalists bloody hate Thomas Jefferson. So he thought he'd have a chance of winning the House vote for president, That you know, the House controlled by the Federalists. Given how much the Federalists hated Jefferson, their principal rival, they think he, he, he gambled and he thought, well, they'll see me as the lesser of two evils and they'll go for me instead of their hated rival Jefferson. But guess what happened? Check this out. Alexander Hamilton, who, I mean, in, you know, he may have disliked Jefferson politically. They, they were. They did not get on politically speaking. But he absolutely bloody hated Burr. He hated Burr so much that he leaps off the top rope and mobilises his own Federalist Party to vote in favour of Thomas Jefferson, the Federalist's mortal enemy, just to ensure that Burr doesn't get the gig. So think of this as a situation, right? The chief political rival of the Federalist Party, Thomas Jefferson, is now being campaigned for by Alexander Alexander Hamilton, the same guy who campaigned against the last Federalist (laughs) president. You've really got to wonder what this bloke is up to. Anyway... Because of the voting rules and because of the need for a clear majority amongst the 16 states, right? It took 36 ballots before the house actually came to a result. all all of the all of the other ballots were actually divided. And Hamilton, he worked tirelessly throughout all these tied ballots, these divided ballots to convince Federalist congressmen in uh, to to vote for Jefferson. And slowly but surely he won enough people over and managed to persuade enough federalists that it was Jefferson and not Aaron Burr who was the lesser of two evils and therefore delivered his old rival into the white house now burr he's now spitting chips he is absolutely rovable he you know he, he's buggered it all up beyond belief because check this out he was the of course he's the vice president right no one's taking that away from him that that's that that's that's done that's 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 done and dusted but in not conforming to the original plan of the Democratic Republicans and ceding his position in in this ballot to Jefferson, he of course absolutely ruined his standing with the new president. He didn't, he, you know, by 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 going against what the Democratic Republicans had had uh, initially planned. Right, Burr had basically burnt any bridge between him and you know. The president, Thomas Jefferson, under <laughs> he, of whom he is now the vice president, right? Ridiculous. So as a result of all this happening, Jefferson never trusted Barr, n- never let him near any decisions of any importance, and even further... Blackballed him from the, the the Democratic Republican Party as well. So poor old Boo, he's lost it all. He's in political limbo. He's he's a pariah from his own political party. He's still, of course, the vice president, right? But he he's 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 a bloody chocolate kettle at this point, mate. He's not use. He's not very useful to anyone at all. He's doing basically nothing, right? Didn't have a very good time. While well, vice president the poor bastard and again you can trace where all of this came back to is all thanks to Hamilton he had cemented their bitter their, their, their bitter mutual hatred uh, by deep sixing Burrs uh, standing and reputation uh, you know amongst the amongst the the Democratic Republicans with the new president Thomas Jefferson Burr was just it was you know his, his reputation was in ruins anyway, by the time eighteen oh four rolls around, so we're gonna we're gonna skip forward a little bit here, right? Eighteen oh four rolls around. The next presidential election is coming up. Jefferson had made it abundantly clear to Burr that he's not going to pick him as a second time for the running mate. No, he's not. Like he he doesn't like him. He doesn't want him. He doesn't trust him. He doesn't want Burr as his running mate. Instead, right. So Burr realizes that he's going to be out in his ass. You know, he's not he's not going to be able to. He's, he doesn't have a, a hope in hell of trying to get anywhere near the presidency, the vice presidency. After after all after everything that's gone on, right. So instead, he decides he, he he refocuses and he decides that he's going to run for the governor of New York. He's going to return to his roots. He's going to rally. He's going to try a different tack and get his political career back on course a different way. Now, of course, we all know that Jefferson went on to win the 1804 election, uh, this time with George Clinton as his running mate. Clinton became the vice president. Um, and the election was held with the new rules laid out in the Twelfth Amendment, so it was slightly less bonkers. Uh, George Clinton, by the way, no relation to former U.S. President Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was actually born Bill Blythe, but he took his uh, his stepfather's last name as a young man. Anyway, anyway, Burr, as I say, he decides he he decided he'd have, he'd have a a crack at the governorship of New York. Uh, but guess who was there once again to stand in his way? Once Hamilton got wind of the fact that Burr was attempting to to, uh, to change, change tack politically, he once again leapt into action Agitated against Burr, pulling out all the stops and did everything he could to make sure that Burr's campaign was unsuccessful. Now you remember, I mean, Burr did have a lot of influence in New York, but so did Hamilton. Hamilton's one of the founding fathers. He's got a, he, you know, he's got a lot of political reach. He's, he, you know, as a as a friend of Washington's, as a, as the first Secretary of the of the Treasury. This bloke has got a, a fair bit of political weight to chuck around, and he brought this to bear once again in attempting to convince everyone that Burr was not up to the job. Right. And this time around in 1804, this took a rather more personal, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the campaign was fought on a rather more personal note by, uh, by Hamilton uh, against Burr this time. And this emerged on the 24th of April, 1804, when a newspaper called the Albany Register published a letter from a bloke named Charles D. Cooper that had been sent to Hamilton's father-in-law, uh, the very same bloke that Burr had beaten in, in a previous election. And in this letter, right, Cooper wrote about how Hamilton had seen Burr as, <clears> there's <throat> a quote, <clears throat> a dangerous man and one who ought not be trusted with the reins of government. And it didn't stop there because Cooper went on to say that he had heard <clears throat> a still more despicable opinion, which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr. Now, this might not sound like much these days, given that, you know, political discourse has become what it is <laughs> today, um, but this was an affront and a grave insult against uh, against Burr, and uh, he wasn't going to take it lying down. Burr immediately demanded that Hamilton either properly come forward with this despicable, despicable opinion, actually tell everyone the, what this despicable opinion was, or apologize for the insults and slander of, you know, the last, what, 15 years or so. Now, Hamilton responded, however, by saying that he wasn't going to be held responsible for the way that someone else had interpreted what he'd said, although he also did nothing to deny Cooper's claims about him having given a despicable opinion. And Burr responded to this by saying, political opposition can never absolve gentlemen from the necessity of a rigid adherence to the laws of honour and the rules of decorum. In other words, why don't we take this outside, Hamilton, mate? And Hamilton replied by saying that he had no other answer to give than that which has already been given. So this was all done by letter, by the way. It's important to note that, which is why we have a record of it. But it's also why when the original insult appeared in a a newspaper in April, we had to actually wait until July before the actual duel. The long and the short of it was that after all this nonsense, Burr formally challenged Hamilton to a duel, and Hamilton accepted the challenge, and so the duel was on. And we're going to take a quick break from the story here to talk about dueling and its place in history of course you've almost certainly heard of it and you'll be aware of the tropes around dueling although not all of them are based in reality dueling has been around for uh, around forever you know as a way for people to usually men usually very idiotic hyper masculine men in order to uh, to settle their differences or uh, you know uh, demand satisfaction from one another in the in the case of a perceived insult or injury or whatever Um... And uh, one of the most famous duels uh, from antiquity, a long, long time ago, is uh, the one between the Horatii brothers and the Curatii brothers uh, from the 7th century BCE, so, uh, you know, what, 2,700 years ago. Um, this duel was fought in a place. It was fought in the place of a full-scale war between Rome and another city, Alba Longa. They they were having a you know they were having some difficulties. They were having a, some arguments, but they were also facing the threat of an external um, military marching in on them. So they knew that if they actually fought, then this external, this third party would come and just absolutely and dump them. So they decided to settle the differences with a duel. Um, and so the long story uh, long story short, uh, the the Horatii and the, the uh, for, for Rome. Uh, were nominated as the champions, three of them, these triplets, these brothers, and the the Curiatii, which I'm almost certainly butchering the pronunciation of, were going to represent uh, they were going to represent the Albans, right? Um lo- uh, so the way that it went, uh, the Curiatii, they killed two of the Horatii during the during the, the duel, but then the last one, the last Horatii Publius, right? He managed to kill all three of the Curiatii and uh, and win the duel. And he then went back to Rome, bloody hero, get around what a legend, he's won the duel. But oh, no, what's this? His sister, Camilla, had actually been engaged to one of the blokes that he just killed. So she's weeping and having a terrible time and great crying and wailing his name. And so Publius responded by pulling out his sword and killing her as well. His own sister saying that none should mourn the death of Rome's enemies. Pretty bloody brutal, but that's the way that that went. More than a few twists and turns in that one, you reckon. But uh, plenty of other stories, plenty of other jewels over the years, of course. And in time... A formalised set of rules was established for duelling known as the Code Duello, which sounds completely fake to be honest. But this code duello, it um, it dealt with things like participants bringing seconds and doctors and witnesses, uh, and set out how, how things should go when a duel takes place. And the main aim of the code, weirdly enough, was to make dueling as safe as possible, like as non-lethal as possible and as fair as possible, uh, while still allowing people to fight, or at least put on a big show of bravado or whatever else they like that. So, you know, doctors coming along and keeping uh, you know uh, treating anyone who was injured, and plenty of witnesses there so no one could go back away from the duel and said, oh, you know, this is what he did, he bloody, you know, kicked me in the fork, or he did this or eye gouging or whatever else, you know. So there'll plenty of people to actually watch it so these you know these affairs of honor could be settled. All very silly. I mean all very, very silly, but that's just how things went back then. Um, Seconds were so the, the, you know the doctor we don't understand why the doctor was there we don't understand the seconds there to obviously be, w- bear witness but they were also there to try to get the duelists to make up and be friends before the fight so the duelists would actually attempt to smooth things over between the two aggrieved parties but failing that the seconds would set up the dueling area uh, and then stand by and watch so they could go back and uh, and tell the story of what how, what had happened and this was all set out in the code, in the code duello. um, duels are very rarely to the death uh not on purpose anyway some obviously some people were killed because that's just the way that it goes but they, they were rarely to the death but also they weren't usually fought to uh first blood which is you know how things are usually depicted these days in fiction usually they were fought, they were fought until one person couldn't continue at which point the doctors that you know that, that, that had been brought on brought along they'd step in they'd end the fight uh, a lot like bo- boxing or martial arts today the doctors would step in they'd say well this bloke you know you batter, the, you batter the crap out of him he's not gonna be able to get back up so um you know you're the winner. Congratulations. So, again, as I've said, a lot of it was about bravado, honour, more than it was actually about getting hurt. Um, And so when pistols began to replace swords, it became very common to to throw away your shot. Uh, In other words, deliberately miss, right? So a lot of duels in the 18th century would go like this. Two blokes would turn up, they'd uh, have a turn shooting off uh, to the side into the ground near-ish their opponent, uh, and that would be that. Now, dueling with firearms, it was codified in the Irish Code Duello, which was adopted in 1777, and this led to the popularity of pairs of identical dueling pistols as a way to make sure things were fair and uh, it was a level playing field. Both both people were using the same firearms. But interestingly, right, um, throwing away your shot, deloping, as it was called, was actually banned by the Irish Code Duello. It was seen as it was seen as you know not not the done thing, despite the fact that it was very much the done thing because often. In the heat of the moment, you challenge someone to a duel, you go home, you cool off, you think about it, you go, bloody hell, I really don't want, I really don't want to have to duel with this bloke. I don't want him to kill me. So people would just, you know, shoot into the ground and 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 generally, you know, they'd both go home to tell the tale and talk about how they, oh, you know, should have seen the other bloke, all that sort of nonsense there. But um the 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 sort of the path, the trajectory that ju- the dueling took as we get into the 19th century and as we approach our story with Burr and Hamilton is that duels are beginning to become increasingly frowned upon and in many places illegal as well. So for this reason, duelists would skirt through grey areas, as we'll discuss. They'd go to places like islands in the middle of rivers that delineated state borders, like the sandbar fight, um, and they'd jump through other ridiculous hoops to avoid getting in trouble with the law. And before we uh, wrap up our our chat about uh, the code duello and dueling in general, uh, I want to mention as well that, uh, interestingly and quite unsurprisingly, when you think about it, it was the code duello that eventually led to the sport of boxing. Because the Marquess of Queensbury rules for amateur boxing grew out of the code duello rules, like using gloves, no punches below the belt or to the neck, uh, banning things like grappling and, and eye gouging, you know, all this sort of stuff. It made the fights much safe, safer. I mean, there's still fights, bloody hell, but they made it made you know it gave you a better chance of walking away in one piece anyway. Um, but this led to the rise of pugilism in the late nineteenth century, and consequently to boxing as the sport that it is today. So you know, there, there is quite a bit of history behind all this sort of stuff but we are going to go back to 1804 now and this duel between uh to, between Burr and Hamilton that's just been set up and again as you as you can probably guess by now after he- having heard about the the code duello and how and how duels were sorted out back then it was a lot more about uh, pomp and circumstance than it was about actually you know hurting or killing each other but having said that this one was more than a little bloody weird because Burr was definitely blowing this whole situation up. His pretext for having the duel was a little rickety. Um, it wasn't as insulting to his honour as he was making it out to be, the stuff that Hamilton had or hadn't said. And uh, it was definitely him kind of, you know, making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill there. In fact, it actually made him look kind of kind of bloodthirsty, uh, while Hamilton's acceptance of the challenge made him look kind of suicidal. I don't know. Like, both the point I'm trying to make here is both of these blokes, right, the bottom line is it just didn't need to happen. Both of them, one of them, either of them just could have walked away, but neither did because, you know, well, because I'm not sure exactly, there's actually a lot of speculation as to why both these bikes went through with it. It's obviously to do with, you know, honour and prestige and your reputation, that sort of stuff. Burr must have felt that his honour could never recover without a duel, you know, to come back from Hamilton's attacks on his character during the gubernatorial race. And Hamilton, on the other hand, I mean, he accepted the duel without really intending to fight it properly. Um, he fully intended to throw away his shot, but as to why he agreed to it in the first place, it wasn't very clever of him. He he wrote about it extensively, actually. He wrote this statement um, uh, about his decision to duel Burr. He discussed how he was, you know, putting his family's welfare at risk, their financial well-being, how he uh, it went against a lot of his personal and, and ethical beliefs and values and but I mean, I don't, maybe I don't know, maybe he just he felt like he had no other choice. Maybe he felt like he was going to be the uh, you know the the the, the more ethical uh, person there by turning up and and throwing away his shot in contravention of the Irish code do you know, look, I, I mean, I did a lot of reading on that. if there is some sort of historical consensus, I was not able to find it. Uh, it It does seem a little weird that that Hamilton went through with this when he didn't have to do it. Um, I mean, believe it or not, here's here's the thing that that really puts it over the top for me, right? Hamilton's own son, Philip Hamilton, had been killed in a duel in 1801 when he duelled George Ecker after Ecker called him a damned rascal. Now you'd think that the loss of a son, especially you know the loss of a son who ended up in a duel because he'd insulted some other hothead, right? You'd think the loss of a son would have actually put Hamilton off the idea of dueling, but no. As as remarkable as it is, it, it 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 didn't seem to deter him, and. It really is a bit baffling as to why Hamilton accepted the duel. I, I mean, there, there, I guess there, if you know, if we're talking about honor and we're talking about prestige, there is another factor that does come into it. Hamilton has the very dubious honor of being the first major U.S. political figure to have been involved in a sex scandal. So maybe the uh, maybe the loss of honor and prestige uh, from that was hanging over him, and he didn't think he would, could recover from turning down a duel. In um, in 1791, he had had an affair with a married woman. And this was discovered uh, by the public years later, and it prompted a huge scandal. Interestingly, as well, the the, the woman's husband found out long before the public did. He knew he, the, the the husband knew about this this affair, and actually blackmailed the pants off of Hamilton, and even encouraged his wife to continue the affair so he could keep extorting money from uh, uh, you know from from this bloke who was sleeping with his wife. Anyway, as I said, Hamilton did actually write this statement, and, and you can go and read it. It's called the statement of statement on impending duel with Aaron Burr. It's not very really long, um, and in it he he explains well how truthful he was being in this letter remains you know a matter for debate. But he did um, he did seek to explain why he accepted the duel, and you know he talked about a loss of honor. He talked about uh, the feeling that he needed to do it in order to uh, to save his prestige and whatever else. But he also talked about the fact that he was going to throw away his shot. Right? Uh, he was not going to. Uh, he was not going to actually, you know, properly take part in the duel. Um, and he's going to do this uh, in his words to give Burr a chance to pause and reflect. So I don't know if if the whole thing was just to try to teach Burr a bit of a lesson. Um, you know, there is a fair bit of debate as to how sort of genuine and earnest Hamilton was being in the uh, in the statement that he wrote. But look, the, the, the long and the short of it is he accepted the duel and it was on and there was no getting out of it now. So with the duel organised, both men made preparations to travel out to Weehawken in New Jersey, a very deliberately chosen spot. Uh, I mentioned before that dueling was on its way out, legally speaking, and by this stage it had been banned in both New York and New Jersey. Uh, but this spot, we hawken, it was uh, it was a pop popular dueling location as as New New Jersey was uh, much more lax in enforcing anti-dueling laws uh, than New York was, um, and even more remarkably, uh, it was actually the very same place that Hamilton's son had had his fatal due- duel a couple of years ago. So on the morning of the eleventh of July, eighteen o four, Hamilton and his associates they were rowed out to the very place that his son had been fatally shot to engage in the same activity that had killed young Philip. And Burr also made his his way there with his respective crew. Um, and I think at this point it's probably worth pointing out some of the ridiculous things. I mentioned before some of the ridiculous things they did to skirt around anti-dueling laws. In order to offer plausible deniability to the people there, the pistols were hidden in bags, or hidden away in, tra- in travelling bags, so the rowers could truthfully say that as they rode them out, they as, as they never saw any weapons, Uh, And additionally, it had been decided that everyone there—seconds, doctors, everyone—right would turn their backs and not witness the duel firsthand again, so they could truthfully deny ever having seen either man shoot at each other. It all seems like a great big song and dance to you know to go through when the whole thing is about gentlemanly honour. But whatever that—that is—that is is how it went. Anyway, both parties they arrived at the arranged spot at six thirty in the morning, and after the seconds had marked out the duelling area and determined where both duelists would stand, Burr and Hamilton. They took up their positions. Everyone else turned their backs, utterly ridiculous, and these two political rivals, bitter enmity coursing through them, began their fated duel. Now, what you'd expect to happen ordinarily, you know, according to the customs of the time, was for the two men to stare at each other and then in a very silly and pointless pointless display of over- overblown masculinity point the pistols off to the side, and fire into the ground. And that's it. That's a duel finished, and, you know, they can walk away from it uh, with their head, with both of their heads held high. I mean, totally, totally silly. So so ridiculous, the whole thing. I don't know how it got to a point that shooting into the ground near-ish someone counts as having your demand for satisfaction fulfilled, but whatever, right? But, of course, that's not what happened, as many of you listening will already know. Now, because there were no direct eyewitnesses, there is no clear factual account of everything that took place, but... Here are some things, right? Here's a small list of things that everyone agrees on, at least. There were two shots, although we don't know who shot first. Hamilton's shot went over Burr's head, striking a tree branch. Burr's shot, however, hit Hamilton in the lower abdomen, and this caused Hamilton to collapse immediately. Now, if Hamilton shot first, it's thought, uh, you know, that if he didn't, if he didn't, if he shot first and didn't fire into the ground as uh, as Burr might have expected him to then Burr may have assumed that Hamilton was actually attempting to shoot him after all. After all, he didn't know that, uh, as we do now, that Hamilton had written of his intentions to throw his shot. So under the Code duello, uh, Burr was now entirely justified in trying to hit Hamilton as well, you know, and, and trying to kill him because it, it seems to him that Hamilton is just trying to take a shot at him and just miss terribly. But conversely, if Burr shot first and indeed was trying to kill Hamilton from the beginning, Hamilton may have just shot wildly as, as a reflex while collapsing uh, and he, and had his bullet hit the tree instead. Again, Hamilton wrote about his intention to throw the shot away, co- w- w- you know, which was, again, let's re- remind ourselves, prohibited by the code duello, uh, as, as dishonorable as or whatever as it, as, a, as it may have been to do such a thing. That's what Hamilton said he wanted to do. So Hamilton may have just shot above Burr's head deliberately missing, which may have misled Burr and then caused him to actually take aim at, aim at Hamilton properly. Or Hamilton could have shot first. And as I say, Hamilton may have just shot his shot as a, as a, as a reflex or as a, you know, as, as part of just collapsing to the ground after having been being hit. It's worth pointing out, too, that it's entirely plausible that Burr really actually may have tried to kill Hamilton given how much they hated each other. While it may have been customary for the two people to delope in a situation like this, it is actually entirely, it's, it's, it's plausible, it, it could even potentially be probable that, that Burr did seek to kill Hamilton here. Years after the duel, Burr spoke more than once about his intention to kill Hamilton during the duel, uh, in, indicating that he may have you know, gone to the, this, this duel with murderous intentions. But the plot thickens here. And this is why I've made a bit of a song and dance about the fact that Hamilton may not have been entirely honest with us when talking or writing about this duel. Because there is been, there is, there's been the suggestion that Hamilton was actually trying to martyr himself to Burr. Before they took up positions properly, Hamilton made a great big fuss of adjusting his glasses, testing the sights in his pistol, and doing all sorts of, these other, all sorts of little other things that could have been a deliberate provocation. Why? Because Hamilton knew that if Burr shot him, he would also end his own political career. He'd be absolutely ruined as a politician afterwards. So maybe Hamilton was actually trying to rile Burr up and get him pissed, you know, pissed off enough to actually try to shoot to kill just to ruin Burr's career as a politician. Unbelievable. And as it turned out, of course, a bit of a bloody Pyrrhic victory there, Hamilton, old mate. But, you know, you do you, I suppose. Now... Regardless of whom shot first, and irrespective of, you know, what the intentions were going into the duel, Hamilton was shot, he collapsed, and as soon as he did so, Burr's squad quickly grabbed Burr and whisked him away, ushered him away to the boats, um, as Hamilton's seconds and his doctor rushed to his side. Now, the doctor, a bloke named David Hozak, actually happened to be the very same doctor who had tended to fill up Hamilton's wounds a few years ago, and unfortunately, this situation was just as grim. Hamilton was terribly wounded. He was paralyzed, and despite his companions rushing him back onto the rowboat and back to New York, he never recovered. The bullet bounced off his false ribs, tore through his his, his insides and lodged itself in uh, in his vertebrae. And this meant that after thirty excruciating hours, Alexander Hamilton surrounded his bedside by his wife, their remaining children, many other friends and family. He finally died on the afternoon of the 12th of July, 1804. Again, just over a day, 30 hours after he'd been shot by Aaron Burr. As for Burr, he fled to South Carolina for a time. But don't forget, this guy was still, he's still the vice president. Like, he's still the vice president of the United States. He just shot a man dead, but he's still vice president, uh, even if Jefferson was giving him the uh, the old freeze out. Uh, he was charged with murder in both New Jersey and New York, but uh, ultimately never stood trial. He very cunningly avoided uh, standing trial. He very, very, very cleverly avoided this happening with the ingenious method of staying away from those two states. And then the charges were eventually dropped. But uh, the reason for the New uh, for the New Jersey charges being dropped, actually, uh, very, very, it's, it's particularly hilarious. New Jersey decided not to prosecute Burr for the death of Hamilton because, although he shot him in New Jersey, Hamilton died in New York. So, The Perfect Crime. I didn't know that's how it worked, you know. The next time you want to murder someone, just just invite them to the Four Corners Monument from Breaking Bad. No worries at all. Anyway, eventually Burr did did return to Washington and despite having, you know, despite never never standing trial for murder, he himself was present at the impeachment trial of a supreme as a of a Supreme Court judge and oversaw this judge oversaw this uh, this trial. With a great deal of even-handed political neutrality, uh, which set a very important precedent for this sort of thing, I might add as well. That is perhaps the second most (laughs) historically significant part of Aaron Burr's legacy, uh, perhaps. Anyway, um, once Burr's term as vice president was over, uh, he travelled west and had a number of adventures out there that led to President Jefferson, of course, instituting the Insurrection Act in order to bring him in. We heard about that in episode 103. Uh, The long and the short of it was that uh, war was potentially brewing with Spain, and Burr um, apparently gathered troops and made ready to seize land for himself in the event of an an armed conflict. But this war never came. Uh, But uh, that didn't stop Jefferson uh, from ordering the capture of Burr. And uh, once Burr had been brought back to Washington, he was put on trial for treason, although never convicted. Uh, Jefferson threw the kitchen sink at his former vice president trying to get him done. Uh, and it was actually a very important test of the separation of powers in the United States uh, as because Jefferson leant very heavily on the judge to convict Burr, but this ultimately had no effect and uh, and Burr was able to walk free. However, he had no hope, absolutely no hope whatsoever of any kind of political comeback after this, uh, killing Hamilton, being charged with treason and, you know, importantly, owing a lot of people a lot of money. Uh, this all meant that he fled Europe, therefore, with the, with some money that he borrowed from none other than... Dr. David Hosack, the same doctor who had seen to both Hamiltons. Ridiculous. This bloke just kept popping. Keep, keeps popping up in this story. Anyway, Burr travelled around Europe for years between 1808 and 1812, but eventually returned to the United States under a new name, Aaron Edwards. And he went back to New York, continued, un, uh, continued working as a lawyer. But after having a stroke in 1834, he also finally died two years later in 1836. Now, both Burr and Hamilton, of course, earned their place in history for many reasons. Hamilton... Of course the more famous of the two is remembered for his role as the first secretary of the treasury under Washington, his writing the Federalist Papers and as one source put it, his role as <clears throat> the visionary architect of the modern liberal capitalist economy. Burr on the other hand set a firm precedent for even-handed impartiality as the vice president's role as the president of the Senate, which went on to influence many other vice presidents across the centuries. However, on top of all of this it really is the duel between these two that resonates the strongest throughout history when we talk about either Aaron Boer or, or Alexander Hamilton and of course this duel has served as the centerpiece in many pieces of popul- popular media over the uh, over the years including the wildly successful musical Hamilton. Finally, uh, one last consequence of, of the duel between these two was, of course, the, the way that it bolstered the growing anti-dueling movement. Hamilton's death aided, uh, you know, these people who were campaigning against dueling, The people who were people who used his death as an example of, of, you know, why an end should be put to dueling altogether. And, of course, as we know today, dueling has slowly but surely died out in the years since then. And obviously there were other factors that went into it as well, but the death of a high-profile statesman like Alexander Hamilton certainly catalyzed that change. But none of this stopped descendants of both Burr and Hamilton meeting in Weehawken in 2004, on the 200th anniversary of the duel, and they met there in order to reenact it. Thankfully, however, no one died this time around. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Alexander Hamilton's duel with Aaron Burr. Very interesting to learn some of the sort of behind-the-scenes details that went into uh, quite an iconic piece of American history there. So I do hope you enjoyed the story. Um, all the normal, boring, housekeeping stuff coming your way here, history.net. Contact form there if you want to get in touch with the show. Old episodes, links to subscribe, of course. Uh, if you want to leave an iTunes review, I'd appreciate that. If you want to buy some Half hour History swag... HalfHouseHistory.BigCartel.com, free shipping worldwide, and stocks starting to run a little low. So if you've been thinking about it, now's a great time to uh, to get ahead of the, uh, I was going to say get ahead of the rush. There's probably not going to be a rush, but look, if you want a T-shirt, I just don't want you to be disappointed, mate. Just If you want a T-shirt, just go and buy a T-shirt. You can also support the show uh, on Patreon, patreon.com slash history. Thank you very much to the new Patreon members who have subscribed. Got a couple of... Uh, of of people who have started chucking me money that way and i tell you what i bloody appreciate it so thank you very much uh to those if you'd like to join their exalted ranks of course you can gain access to uncut episodes show notes uh and you get the episodes uh a little bit ahead of time as well uh you know ahead of the of the common muck as well so you can you can enjoy that but thank you for listening to the show of course if you want to tell your friends and family about it i'd certainly appreciate that get the word of half house history out there got to get those numbers up rookie numbers in this racket but uh, as i say That is that for this week. We're going to close things out as usual with a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Hugh Jamerican asks, Would the musical Hamilton be more accessible to younger audiences if he were played by Lynn Automatic Miranda?